Welcome to Funding the Future, a special edition of Category Visionaries, where instead of interviewing founders, we interview the VCs and angel investors that back them with capital, resources, and advice. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Sergey Gerbov, general partner of Flint Capital. Sergey, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. So to kick things off, could you just tell our audience a little bit more about who you are, your background, and really just how you made your way into the world of venture capital? Sure. So my background is actually technical. I graduated computer science degree. I was kind of lucky enough, uh, you can say, when I was still in university, I joined a company called Compigen, one of the successful startups from Israel. I used to live in Israel back then. Mm-hmm. And I was employee number one there, and kind of it got from there. The nice thing about being employee number one in a successful company, you can try a lot of different things and you can grow with company. So basically, at some point when we needed to open an office in the States, founders already had families. I didn't, so I was the one to go. So I moved to Boston around like 20 plus years ago, been part of different startups, part of the founding team part of the uh, technical top management, CTO, VPR&D, things like that. At some point, kind of decided to switch to the dark side, went to MIT, did business degree, started to do some angel investments, and I joined Flint about several years ago. And for those who aren't familiar with Flint, can you just tell us a bit more about the fund, the fund size, and, and maybe some of those bigger bets that you've made that you're known for? Uh, sure. So we... We're international fund, uh, we early stage fund. Each fund is 100 million. We're right now on a third fund. We just did the first closing on a third fund last year. And we're a little bit different from most of the venture funds because we run completely distributed shops. So we were remote first before it was actually a trend. The whole team actually never worked from the same office. Me and another partner and principal while located in Boston, we have another part, a third partner is in Europe, and we have also principal in Israel. Mm-hmm. And we do a lot of investments in Israel and in Europe. I would say about half of our portfolio is Israel, quarter Europe, quarter US, plus or minus. And we think what one uh, our structure is also allowing us to help companies from Europe and Israel to come to US. Basically, we invest in companies who are going up to US market first, so we can bring added value to these companies because we're on the ground here, we can help them with a lot of stuff. So we do early stage, anywhere from like pre-seed to early rounds, fairly active with lead rounds. We have a lot of different sectors we can cover. Basically, we do B2B, B2C, fintech, cybersecurity, digital health. And it, like first fund kind of had several successful companies. We, we have, I don't even remember the number of exits, but uh, in the first fund, basically we had a company called WalkMe, that's an Israeli company which did IPO on NASDAQ uh, a couple of years ago. Also in the first fund, we investors in Flow Health, which by now is, it's a B2C app number one for women's health. By now, we're actually number one up in whole wellness category. We were the first check in flow health. And we also led around a company called Socure, which is a US company, 
which is solving virtual identity problems. So a pretty big company, uh, last round was at 4.5 billion relation, still involved with the company and still on the board. But kind of couple examples of companies from first fund. And when you look at the portfolio companies that you've worked with in Israel and or in Europe, when they're considering expanding to the U.S. market and entering the U.S. market, what do they typically get wrong? Are there any patterns that you see or specific misconceptions that international founders have about the U.S. market? So Israel is a little bit different. In case of Israel, we're not actually expanding to U.S. market. We're actually using U.S. market as their first market because practically there is no market in Israel, which is, I think, actually a good thing. So most of Europe, Israeli companies are going after U.S. market right away. Israel, the good thing about Israel founders, usually they have some experience with U.S. In Israel, it's quite easy to find people who already worked in U.S. market, who sold to U.S. market, etc. So I wouldn't say there are a lot of misconceptions there. In case of Europe, actually, one of the mistakes we see is actually in Europe, you do have some markets. So a lot of European companies, they say, okay, it's much easier for us first to go after European market and we're going after European market. And it's a little bit different market. So we're kind of building the product for a little bit different market. And when they come into US, it's kind of, a little bit harder for them to do it because we also need to serve the existing clients. So we need to listen to the existing clients and sometimes we need a little bit different product to go after the yes market. And I think, yeah, I think I wouldn't say it's misconceptions, but I think one of the mistakes also people are doing is uh, when the company is really, really early and we start hiring uh, salespeople in the US. Mm-hmm. And usually it doesn't work well for many different reasons. One, uh, usually when you early stage company, it's very hard to build kind of playbook for the sales. You still need to learn a lot about your customers. You're still kind of selling something which you didn't build yet. So I think at this stage, the right way to do it is actually founders should be selling and kind of outsourcing sales to somebody doesn't work well. And now a problem is what when you early stage company especially if you're located outside of the U.S., it's very, very hard for you to hire a really good salesperson in the U.S. because the really good ones, they wouldn't go to work for like small company, which doesn't even have an office here. Mm-hmm. So what often happens, what people are hiring, their first salesperson, which is not the perfect hire, and uh, they don't have direct touch with customer, and that's where things go broke. Mm-hmm. So what I usually say is what first, you can't do anything here. You have to go and basically as a founder to sell your first customers, going to ask yourself. And once you get to like next stage, when you already have customers, you raised way more money, you look more like an established company. That's the point when you start kind of building an office here and hiring people. Hmm, super interesting. And I saw online that Flint Capital was ranked as Inc. Magazine's or one of Inc. Magazine's most founder-friendly funds in the world. So I'd love to ask a little bit about that. What do you do to be founder-friendly? Because I know there's a lot of VC funds out there that say, hey, we're founder-friendly and you know everyone seems to be founder-friendly these days. But how do you make that real and, and how do you truly be founder-friendly? 
So I think when you talk to different investors, everybody say what they have some added value, et cetera, et cetera. In an essence, think about money as kind of ultimate commodity. Basically, all money is green, so every VC is kind of ultimate commodity. So they have to distinguish themselves by bringing something more to the table than just money. But in reality, if you talk to founders, what we would say, what most of investors, we don't bring any additional wealth. So some investors would talk about we're helping to hire people, we're helping with other stuff. And it's good. It's We do this thing too. What I found is what, like, the main thing you need to be different is you actually genuinely try to help. Mm -hmm. uh, because frankly, when I talk to a potential founder, I can tell him what I'll help him to hire people. Does it mean I will really succeed? I don't know. I have companies where I actually help to bring a lot of good folks to go to marketing, but does it mean I can do it for every of my companies? Probably not. There are some companies where I helped with introduction to a lot of our investors and we actually closed some full-on rounds with our investors who I know well. But again, it doesn't mean what for every single company I will be able to do it. What I can promise to my founders, what we will be there to help them. And usually the way we work, I usually have very close relationship to founders. I usually talk to them at least like once every couple of weeks in the beginning. And I'm always online. So every single of my founders, we have access to me basically 24 by 7. They can chat to me on WhatsApp when we need. They call me. I work a lot with Israeli founders. So in Israel, as you may know, Sunday is actually working day. So my wife probably hates me for this, but like <laughs> a lot of Sundays I have at least a couple of calls with my founders. Sometimes it's just kind of ad hoc. Can you talk now? Sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so I think it's a matter of being there for them. Mm -hmm. And now an interesting thing is what Israel is different, actually, when like most of our markets, it's very small ecosystem. So everybody knows everybody, which means what if you're doing something right, people at some point will know about it, pretty much everybody. But if you're doing something wrong, people will know about it too. So when I talk to Israeli founders, and actually it's a good advice, I give it to like every single founder, make sure you do you due diligence on investors before taking their money. And what I say to my founders in Israel, who I'm talking to, we have all our portfolio on our website. In Israel, it's pretty easy to find common friends with everybody. So I'm pretty sure you can get to at least some of my founders. Mm -hmm. So go ask my founders and check with them how, how I'm as investor. That's what I say to any prospective company. And I think... It works very well in our case. And if you had to guess, how many pitches per month do you see? Or do you, you know, join founders for? Is oh, it like five, 10, 100? <laughs> how many? It's actually probably tens of pitches. I, at some point, I checked in our CRM and it looked like in the year I see plus or minus around 1,000 companies, which means it's not just the number of companies who get to me, it's the companies which are interesting enough, so I put them into CRM. So I would guess out of this thousand, probably more than half, I had at least one call with. So let's kind of give you ballpark. I would say somewhere probably between 50 to 70 pitches a month. 
prolonging it. <laughs> it's yeah. a lot. And yeah. if you reflect on those pitches, are there any patterns you see of things that founders routinely get wrong when it comes to pitching VCs like yourself? Well, there are a lot of different things. Like one thing which a lot of founders kind of don't pay enough attention is like competition and basically why we're going to win. So fairly often you will see founders and we would go off the market, which is already pretty crowded. And basically we would say, yeah, but we are better than everybody in this market. It doesn't really work that way. You can't really say you are better because you are smarter or whatever, because probably our startups are also as smart. Some of them probably able to raise way more money than you. So you need to explain actually why you're better, what's the competitive advantage you have against our companies and how this competitive advantage can be sustained over the years, even if our companies in this space have way more funding, for example. So that's one thing, and that's always kind of, even when people show some kind of competitive landscape, we like to have like couple companies there on their like four quadrants and they're in like upper right quadrant. It looks cool, but it doesn't answer the question properly. And now I think, I think when people look at the market, they tend to calculate the market really, really like white. It's not really the market they're going after because it's not addressable in many cases. So you need to be, to make sure what you actually calculate the correct addressable market, which is basically if you own the market 100%, how much money you're going to get in revenue. What's kind of the total addressable market. So that's another thing. And there are lots of different hour questions, which can be released. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And what about on the positive side then? Are there specific things where, you know, you see them on a pitch deck or in a pitch and it just makes your heart happy and you say, yes, this is it. This is what we're looking for. Like, are there any specific things that come to mind that you just feel, you know, really attract what you're looking for? So you look at the main things basically, which is like, uh, how big is the market? How big of a problem you're trying to solve? What's your solution? And what's your competitive advantage? Why are you going to be the best one in this market and the team. Team is kind of the most important one. So that's especially at early stage, that's basically the main thing you look at. And things I really like when you have a team and especially if the team already work together, if the team already have connections to each other, you know, we know how to work as a team. One of the things actually I like to do is maybe not the first call, but at least like second or third call, I usually ask all the founders to be on, on the call. And I usually love to see the dynamic between founders because sometimes you would see what the CEO talking all the time and the rest of the team is just staying quiet, which is probably not the best dynamic. You want to see what the team is actually complementing each other. So if you ask a question on technical side, you will see CTO actually answering the question, not CEO. When you ask a question on go-to-market side, you will see 
CMO, CRO, whoever is responsible for go-to-market function like answering quiz. So when you see this dynamic between the uh, founders, what's what's a really good sign? I mean, obviously, traction tells a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have any traction, show it first because it's it's section telling. If you have already customers and customers love you and you can show what people are willing to pay for a product, that's usually a really good sign. When it comes to market sizing, how do you advise early stage founders to think about market sizing? Because that's something that I always see founders struggle with, especially if you're in a market that's emerging. So do you have like a framework or a process or like any guidance that you could share for founders for how they can approach market sizing? So you want to try to estimate, as I said, the total addressable market is something. Think about this way. Mm-hmm. If my company completely owns the market, like 100%, I'm the only player on the market, I have monopoly, and all potential customers are actually my customers and they're paying for a product, what's my revenue going to be? What's, what's your total addressable market? So it's always good to, and you can get to this number in different ways. It's always good to have several ways to get to a number so you can do it bottom up and basically say, okay, what's the number of companies who can be my potential customers? That's how much we are willing to pay for this product. And it's good to show some numbers here, not just, okay, I decided what each company pays 100K, but like show, okay, we're paying for similar products, X, that's how much money we're saving them. So we think we're going to be paying in the vicinity of that number. And basically, this way you get kind of bottom-ups approach. And you can go top to bottom when you basically say, okay, here is research which shows what this segment is that big. And it's growing at that rate. So if you have different numbers where, and they're a little bit different, but we're kind of in the same vicinity, that's usually a good sign. That usually means what? probably your calculations are in the ballpark correct. Now, when you have, sometimes what you mentioned, sometimes you have a market which is just developing, but even then you can still kind of show some numbers. You can probably estimate how many companies will need your product in five years and how much they be theoretically willing to pay for it or how much of the volume you can get in five years in terms of like transaction volume, number of users, whatever. So everybody kind of understands what there's no really science for the market sizing. It's usually kind of guesswork, but people are looking for kind of educated guess. If you like couple orders of magnitude, so people will see it. If you kind of in the ballpark, it doesn't really matter if it's a billion dollar or two billion dollar or three billion dollars. Not really, because you want to have the market which is big enough to accommodate uh, building a big company, and that's usually build billion dollar and above. But if you can show in vicinity how you get to this, that's a good sign. And if you look at the B2B founders that you've invested in, what are the conversations like with them right now? You know, what are some of those big concerns that they have, and what are you advising them to do? You know, given the state of the market today. So state of the market, I would characterize the today's state of the market as uh, the biggest problem is actually uncertainty. We're still not in recession, but everybody is kind of waiting for this. So I 
think, and especially if you're talking about the fundraising market, that's kind of fundraising right now is not really good because a lot of funds are not investing. A lot of funds are kind of waiting. We want to see where the whole thing goes, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're trying to fundraise in today's market, you better show really, really, really good traction. So we have we have companies who just raised rounds, and we have companies who raised a really good round just a couple months ago, but their traction is phenomenal. So what I would say to today, in today's market, to my, most of my companies, first, you need to figure out what's going to happen and kind of leave enough of the safety net in case of market kind of fluctuations. If actually recession is going to happen, if recession is going to be deeper than expected. So you, you want to make sure you have enough of the flexibility. You need to really, really watch your burn. You need to really be capital efficient. Pretty much every single company I have, we kind of made sure what we have enough of the runway to kind of wait enough time before we raise in the next round. And basically, most of the companies were on kind of different scenarios. What do we do in case if we're not able to grow at the pace we're planning to? How do we kind of cut the down to make sure we extend the runway to get to the numbers we wanted before the next round, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you want to have as much flexibility as possible and really, really optimize for the runway route and for like going aggressively after growth. What about go-to-market mistakes? Are there any common go-to-market mistakes that you see founders make? So there, there are lots of them. I mean, you have companies who died just because we couldn't find product market fit, but most of the problems with product market fit are actually not the product, but more like market fit. Mm-hmm. So the number of companies who are dying because their product is no good are probably a couple order of magnitudes are smaller than the number of companies who are dying because we just can't figure out a good to market. So there are lots of different mistakes, like in many cases, when people are building their own product, for example, then you, that's actually one of the reasons why I insist on founders actually doing their first sales, because at this, at the early stage, the most important thing you need to get to is the product market fit. And the only way to get to the product market fit is to listen well to your customers. So if you are a founder, and you do, you're actually doing the sales, it means you're talking constantly to your customers, you're learning from them, you're learning what they like about your product, what they miss in your product, and you're kind of constantly improving your product and getting closer to your product market fit. So that's another reason why, for example, trying to outsource your first sales is probably a big mistake. And another thing which I see quite often is when people build the product, which is, and you see typically with products, what kind of more like vitamins than kind of drugs. Mm-hmm. So nice to have that kind of product. You often see what people are not willing to pay a lot of money for this, but you still need to do classical enterprise sales. So classical enterprise sales, it means what you have enterprise sales, people who actually talk a lot to customers. Sometimes we, we will need to meet with customers several times before we close we sell long sales cycles and if with all this enterprise sales model all you sell is like 10 or 15,000 worth of product it's just not never going to work 
for the classical enterprise sales, you have to have a CV above 50K a year. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And the problem I've seen in a lot of companies where, where we have the classical enterprise sales model, but where CV is like 10 to 20K. So they get initial traction, but it kind of gets stuck there because we're talking about, okay, we're going to improve our ACV, we're going to grow it, but we never succeed to grow it to make enterprise sales possible. And we never figure out how to do kind of low touch sales, which would make sense in this ACV. So, and I've seen a bunch of companies who kind of stuck in the middle there and because of this, we also fail to raise the next round because any investor who look at it say, okay, it's not scalable model. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually you also see in these cases a lot of churn. That's another kind of parameter you should really, really closely watch because it's an indicator what you're still not at your product market fit. So that kind of things. And final question for you. What types of opportunities are you looking to back right now? Are there any specific segments or markets or categories or problems that you're especially looking to solve and be part of solving? So we're looking at different segments. We, for example, we're looking at uh, HTEC because there are lots of interesting things should be built in this space. We're looking a lot in digital health because, again, healthcare system in the US is kind of in pretty bad shape, to say the least, right? There are lots of inefficiencies. There are lots of things you can really solve. So we have companies who are trying to solve healthcare problems in the US. Uh, that's another space, which I think there will be a lot of value created in the next uh, five to 10 years. We we'll also continue investing in cybersecurity because it's a big space. Uh, if you look at numbers of losses for businesses, from cybercrime, we are growing every year and growing fairly rapidly. So you always have new attack vectors. You always need to build products to protect against these attack vectors. So we, we have pretty wide kind of focus. Amazing. All right, Sergey, we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if any founders want to get in touch with you or just learn more about Flint Capital, where should they go? It's easy to find my email. It's sg at flintcapital.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, any other social media, and we fairly open. Although it's always better when you're trying to contact somebody, it's always better to get through warm introductions. But we actually do try to answer cold emails. I not always have time to go over all of them, but I try to. (laughs) <laughs> Amazing. Well, Sergey, thank you so much for taking the time and really just talking us through your insights and perspective and some of the lessons that you've learned from being part of so many different founders' journeys. I've really enjoyed our conversation and wish you and Flint Capital the best of luck in the future. Thanks again for having me. It was fun. No problem. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 